0: Okay, so obviously that's a big old, big old text. And it's not only is it a big old text, it's got stuff in it. It's a thick hunk. But here's the problem. It's all one piece. So decided to tackle this massive hunk of scripture in probably what ended up being the most tumultuous study of a passage ever in my 25 years of doing teaching. And um, in the end, it's a very, very beautiful text. So let's just say you're in sixth grade. This is very helpful for you. You may not understand all the things in it, but it's very, very helpful for you. And let's just say you're like 92. This is very, very helpful for you, and you can get so many of the pieces of it, even if you didn't get all of the pieces of it. Okay. So uh, as we came to this text today, I had a, I had a challenge, um, which was like what to name this thing, uh, because when you study the scripture, the idea is, and you teach the scriptures. You should be looking to see what the main, main message is, and that's what the message should be, not just little details in the middle of it, if that makes sense. So I had a couple titles. My title today for our passage, whoops, oh, man. I'm doing this already. Here we go. Wait, I'm come coming up on it. No, don't save me. Do not save me. I'm, I'm going to do this myself. How about we save that sensor back there while I save... My notes. Okay. How to grow out of boredom with Jesus. That's my title. How to grow out of boredom with Jesus. Because a lot of us, many of us, hit phases, quite honestly, where we are bored with Jesus. You're so bored with Jesus, you binge on Netflix and cookies and all kinds of hobbies and those kind of things. Because Jesus is not that thrilling to you. Some of us, because we've come to know Jesus so young, we're like... We just know all the stories. We know all the parables. We know so many of the claims, like, yeah, he yeah, it gives me eternal life. and I, I believe that. But we have somewhat of a boredom with Jesus. So I'm choosing the title today, How to Grow Out of Boredom with Jesus. I also could have very called the passage, Who's Your Daddy? Or delighting in the details of Jesus. But we're going to stick with this, How to Grow Out of Boredom with Jesus. Um, and here's where our passage is today. And so I would just, I'm asking you, please, as is my friend have a copy of this in front of your eyeballs, okay? And, and keep it there, because we're gonna go back and forth into this. We're gonna go to no other verses in the entire Bible. We're just, we've got plenty to work with right here, so just find it, park it, freeze your app so it stays on in your eyes. What we're gonna look at today is we're looking at the horrible situation that we all existed in and then how powerfully, thoroughly, and magnificently Jesus crushed the whole situation and brought us far greater good out of it than we had in the first place. We're looking at a horrible situation, how Jesus comes in and amazingly crushes it all and builds something that is so much better than what was bad in the first place. Um, I am 49, I realize that I may be one of the more aged ones in the room. there's this old show called Beverly Hillbillies. If you've not heard Beverly Hillbillies, can you just slip your hand up right now? Okay, small reference. There's this old show, black and white. I grew up watching reruns of reruns, and the beginning of it, there's a guy named Jed Clampett, he's a hillbilly. He's out trying to shoot some animal, a deer, shoots it, rabbit. Uh, shoots it, and up in the yard bubbles oil, right? Uh, crude oil, right? And, and out of that, that tragedy of his yard being blackened by oil gook, all of a sudden, this amazing thing happens. They become millionaires. They move to Beverly Hills. Out of the tragedy comes something really wonderful. In our passage today, I want to give us a little framing in the in the back in the, in the, in the in the groundwork of this. We often talk about the gospel being the central piece of everything in the scriptures. It is the central theme of it. It is, it is the central theme from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. It wasn't understood that fully in the beginning. In fact, the understanding of the gospel in, in, in Genesis is very small. It's mostly what went wrong, where we came from, what went wrong. And then there's a little bit of a hope, chapter 3, a little bit of a hope that God would send the seed of a woman. Just a little glimpse of this gospel, right? And then through that, throughout the Old Testament, more and more pieces are unfolded in the, the specific promises of God. And his agent, this, this one who is anointed, who would someday come and do this. And it was all kind of mysterious and fuzzy. And then Jesus came and then Jesus unfolds it all, right? He pours out the commentary, now we understand everything in the old and what's happening now. It is this unfolding story, but the core piece of that is always this, that God is coming to a broken world and that he is reconciling us through the work he does, not through us shaping up. Um, so I have a, a way that I describe this um, and teach this. It's called, we call it the, the Gospel in 6. I just want to plug this in. These are this the categories where we're going to unfold this morning. Um, When we go through this, we talk about who God is. God made everything. God knows what is best. He is what's best. He makes us and everything out of his generosity so we might be able to share with his magnificence, which is his glory. So he never lets glory, his glory slip off the platform. It's always there. It's always being looked at and preserved. And he makes us to have that relationship, mankind, right? We're designed to be God-centered, not self-centered because we're designed to be alive and to be Thriving, so he makes us to be God-centered, have a relationship with him, to rule the earth. But then we get to the fall where instead of being God-centered, we become self-centered. Enemies, aliens, wrath of God, all that terrible brokenness. We're under the line, we can't fix. But then God comes and puts a proposal, an offer on the table. Though you were self-centered, broken, dead, I will make you, I will reconcile you. That's our passage. I'll reconcile you and change you. I will be your God again, and I'll be your treasure, your your king. And more than king, it will be the treasure of your heart. You, you love me. This is the new proposed position in the gospel. And if you want that, and only if you want that, does the significance of the payment come into place. Jesus came because we couldn't just do that. Jesus came and died on the cross, perfectly obeyed, died on the cross, rose again to earn the payment to give us what was offered. But it doesn't matter if you don't want what's being offered. If you don't want out of fall and into the offer, then the payment really doesn't do you much good. You can't just simply say, oh, I just want a freebie. I want the golden ticket when I'm dead. That's not what Christ is offering. offering reconciliation. And the way we get that is in response. We hear the promises. We see the things that God has said. And we say, I believe you, Jesus. Jesus says, believe. So I believe you. Don't don't try to do goody-goody things. Don't try to whip a a u-y on your own and polish yourself up. And so God goes, oh, you're not that bad because you are that bad. And so am I. We stop in our tracks. We hear the promises of God. And we respond in faith to those promises. We then demonstrate, we come to life, right? He promises that he immediately makes us sons and daughters. We come to life and he said, all right, now I want you to go present, pre- show that to people. That's what baptism is. And then he lives out, gives us a life from here on out where we love him first. We are in his family and love the family second. And third, we love the people around us and we lay our lives down for them. that They might know Jesus. So that's kind of the gospel flow we talk you, right? We're going to do a workshop October 15th. It's a 9 to 5 thing. We'd love for you to be a, a part of that. We stream it for churches, but um, if you're part of our church and you haven't done that, please set aside October 15th to be with us so we can train you so the words are in your mouth because y- you are the people that God's put in your friends' lives and family's lives, not me, and we want you to be th- fluent and the ability to speak the gospel people. So October 15th. All right, so here's the breakdown of a couple of things. Today's thing talks a lot about this category right here. Because when we train people to do gospel sharing, what we t- encourage them to talk about is our culpabilities, how we are guilty. We, d- we are sinners, right? We have made choices to sin. But there's a second side of the fall that we actually don't, I don't encourage you to talk about in initial conversations with people about the gospel because it's rather confusing. It's this idea of Adam. We are active agents of sin, but we are also... Sinners in Adam's, where the curses comes over. And that's a really hard thing for us in the West to deal with, a very individualistic, uh, very individualistic justice culture. So that's a really hard thing. It's really confusing. So I encourage people to not talk about we died in Adam right then, in the first whack, but we believe it with all of our hearts. Today is going to be an unfolding of that. So we're going to see a lot about this, the fall. We're also going to see a lot about this in the payment. This is going to be, this passage is a great unfolding of. Yeah, Je- Jesus is your Savior. But if that's all you got is that Jesus is my Savior, Jesus saved my sins, your amazement is not going to be that high, and quite honestly, your boredom will be quite high because, oh, he just, he's just going to rescue me someday. I'm hoping, by God's grace, that when you look through this passage, that there's going to be roots and feelings. Jesus is going to take you and say, look at what I did, and then look at what I did, and look how awesome this is and amazing. It's going to give you fuel to burn off. There's amazement in Jesus in the details of Jesus. So those are the two categories we're largely going to unfold in this, pa- in this passage. I'm not going to um, I'm not gonna refer back to this, this thing here, but I just want to give you a little couple categories because we talk about being gospel-centered, and so therefore we want to be able to unpack that, all right? So how to grow out of boredom with Jesus. There are a few terms. A lot of times when we teach through passages, we want to kind of allow us to discover things as we go. This passage, you just need to know where we're going before we start. We're gonna get into this kind of swampy. There's some, if you like to think, there's some good thinkers in here. Um, so we're gonna get a little swampy in it. So I want you to know where we're going ahead of time. Okay. Uh, a couple terms I want to clarify. There's a term called sin, and then there's a term called sins, sins, plurals. Then there's a term called transgression. Then there's a term called trespass, and those are all p- uh, terms in the New Testament and reflections of one in the Old Testament, they're all simply terms describing largely the same thing. Rebellion against God and its specific outworkings, the actions of those rebellions. And so in our passage today, it's going to move from sin to trespass, transgression. If you never read the scriptures, you might go, what the world is this? I'm just telling you what it is. It's all the brokenness. It's all the rebellion against God. And when he says sin... That is usually the whole condition. Like it's the, it's, the, it's the cancer that we have our soul. And when he says sins, those are the actions of it. And guys, our biggest problem in life is not that we have done sins and that you've only done 17,452. Just kidding. We know it's in the millions. And the problem isn't that you've simply done sins. The problem is that you have sin, right? It's in you everywhere. So today, just be aware of that. That's what sin, transgression, and uh, trespasses are. Also, the second thing to be aware of is, um, is you, may ra- you may run into things that don't fit your mind in this passage. If you're a follower in Jesus Christ, Christ is king, right? And Christ is truth. The amazing thing is that you, the amazing thing is not that you were born all knowing and knowing all the ways of good and right and the things that are true of the world. The amazing thing is that he is He comes to inform and correct us out of our wrong ways of thinking and to provide a way for us to do that. So we will face things in this passage that may rub against the values in your heart and mind. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Let it rub. Because it's the sweet, sweet shaping of Jesus coming over your mind and your heart and he's changing you to think true. He's showing you what really is there. So don't just ignore it and have a separate category where I have the secular secular world, my sacred world. I have my real world and my fake Jesus world. Jesus is real. And let Jesus come over all your thoughts in this passage. The third part is this. We're going to run into a concept we call federal headship. It's It's a theological category. That we as people were humans. We had a great, 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 great granddaddy, his name was Adam. And what he did, counted for us we were in him but the argument is also now instead of being in him we can have a different great 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 grandfather his name is Jesus and so just as Jesus's work is accomplished because we are in him it works because first we were in Adam is unavoidable to be have a federal head you're either gonna be in Adam or you're gonna be in Jesus and every last one of us me and your grandma We all wake up in this world and we are in Adam. We are part of the nation of rebellion. But Christ comes and he's presenting a second option here. You can be in Christ. And only Christ can pull you out of Adam and put you into Christ, okay? So federal headship, big fat category, and man, it's just gonna rub all up against your Western senses of justice. It is, and so let it rub, all right? Let it rub prayerfully, thoughtfully, a thing to engage with the Lord. Let's look down our text, and I want to walk us through our text. I'm going to read through this. So you're going to read through. I'm reading out the ESV version of the Bible in case that helps you, in case you have a King James or an NIV or a message. This might sound a little bit weird because different passages, but I'll be reading out, the, out of the ESV. And I'm going to be explaining a few things just with words in the text to kind of make us go along because we've got a lot of things to read. Okay. So our first piece is this. The setup of our passage is, is the book of Romans. Paul's writing it by the Spirit. And he's, one of his dominant themes in this is how does the work and message of Jesus tie into what God already did, which was the Old Testament, which people largely misunderstood. So he's tying these things back into it. So once again, you're going to see some language here where he's tying the Old Testament back into the work of Jesus. And the first thing he's doing is telling the people that have a Jewish understanding the problem is way bigger than people messing up God's Old Testament. So we get into our first verse, which is, 512, he says, therefore, going deeper into the reconciliation accomplished in verse 11, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death then through sin, and so death spread to all men because, or demonstrated through the fact that all sinned. So sin went everywhere into humanity, and along with it, physical and spiritual death. We all know that. Everyone keels over. Everybody dies. But not only do they physically die, we have spiritual death that follows that. So the death has gone everywhere because sin has gone everywhere. Because Adam. Verse 13. For indeed, uh for, for sin indeed was in the world before the law, before the old covenant and like the the what's called the law, the old covenant that the Mosaic Code. So before the time of Moses, sin was in the world. Um was in the world before it was given, but sin is not counted or measured where there's no law, so there's no clear understanding of it or way to measure it. So God gave the so out of grace, God gave the Old Testament, particularly through Moses in those times, gave him a whole bunch of laws. It's like um, right at the, at the booth there, we have we have, a, we have an instruction manual on our new church lawnmower. Whoop whoop. Um, and so he comes and gives instruction manual, and um, it it actually shows us how off we were that's what it does when he gives when he provides the measure that's when we really see how broken and we knew something was broken because everyone's dying there's spiritual death there's guilt but when he gives his codified law that's when it becomes really apparent how far off all of us are so it's measured at that point it's 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 counted at that point verse 14 and yet death reigned from adam to moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of adam What is the transgression of Adam? The sin of Adam is when Adam ceremoniously, officially blasphemed God in the garden. You think it's just like, oh, that apple looks good, but here's what's really happening. He's ceremoniously, officially blaspheming God in the garden and baptizing his mouth with fruit. That's the sin. That's what's happening in this great garden moment when, when Eve passes it to Adam, and Adam, as the head of humanity, takes that apple And says, I no longer trust God. God is not the author of good. Um, We can be judges of those things. And he, shall we say, baptizes his mouth with fruit, ceremoniously blaspheming God. And it says then, Adam, verse 14, who was a type of the one who was to come? So the word type is a special word in scripture referring to someone or something who represented the coming Jesus in some way so we could better understand him. There's all these foretastes, like living analogies. um, Not only living analogies, but systems are being set up through the types. Adam is the first type for us. He's a type of Jesus. He is not Jesus, but he's a foreshadowing of Jesus. He's a setup for Jesus. So our first piece is this. All humanity is dead in sin. All of humanity is dead in sin, and we got it through Adam. So the problem of sin is a humanity-wide problem that arrived the moment Adam, our federal head, rejected God's superiority, wisdom, and goodness in the garden. And we receive, therefore, all of us people, alienation and enemy status. It's why sin's gone everywhere. I mean, it's why you wrestle with sin. It's why I wrestle with sin. As a non-believer, why you wrestle with sin. And still for us as believers, why we still wrestle with temptation and sin until God takes us home and perfects us is because we got it from our great-great-granddaddy as he stood blasphemously on behalf of us all and did this, and the curse spreads to all humanity. We know it's there. Sin is a universal human problem, and we as people can't extract ourselves out of Adam. We can't extract ourselves out of humanity. You could kill yourself, but you're not extracting yourself out of humanity. You're still human. You will still exist before the Lord in all reality. So we can't do anything about that sin of being in Adam but there is one who can. And his name is Jesus, and he's the new Adam. And he can pull you out of the old and put you under him, where where sin and death no longer reign. So there's hope in this. There's no hope in yourself, there's no hope for any human in themselves, only hope in Jesus. It sets up a lot, so what's happening is these roots are setting up a lot of categories in our thoughts of how it works between us and God. Question number one, are you able to submit to Christ in this information? Oh, man, it's kind of hard. I'm telling you, it's kind of hard. When I hear that I'm a sinner because Adam, who I did not know personally by about however many thousands of years or however old the earth is in humanity, I didn't know him personally. It doesn't seem very fair that I would be called a sinner because he sinned. Do you get why that doesn't seem fair? Because your friends all get one that, why that doesn't seem fair. And You probably do get why that doesn't seem fair as well. We think in Western ways. We think of just simply personal culpability, but there's a corporate culpability. We are in him, and though it may seem difficult to understand, this is Jesus unfolding how things actually are. So there may be a difference between how we think and all of our friends think and all of our continent thinks and how things actually are, and that's no shocker with Jesus. He didn't come to simply affirm and applaud. He came to inform and call us and give us life. The life he's giving us rest upon these truths. He's telling you, I couldn't come be your head unless you had a head before. That's why super nice people, uh, amazing people, like Megan Moyer back there, she's so awesome. And let's just say Megan Moyer never sinned. I think she has. Okay, so um, if Megan Moyer never sinned and she was super nice and she decided to die for your sins, it doesn't count because she's not a head to call you into. It took Jesus, being a preeminent one, to have a category to call us out of Adam into him. He sets up Adam so he can then live. That's why Megan can never be Jesus, and because she's not Jesus. So number one, are you able to submit to Christ in this? And I might encourage you, that this will be a topic that not just one moment where you go, oh, that's fine, I'll just deal with it. But it's actually something to sit before the Lord and wrestle with. Like, how is this true? Is, is Scott just completely off his rocker reading this password? Did you get like a bad translation? Unfortunately, the translation you have says the same thing too. Like, how does this work? This is a good thing to sit before the Lord and pray about. God, are you inviting me to understand something far deeper than I understand? Is it possible that me and my culture, my humanity, and my logic are smaller than yours? It's something to wrestle through with the Lord. And let's wrestle through it together. It's hard stuff to think through. And number two, if that's true, are you ready to submit to your inability to fix yourself and the inability of anybody you know to ever fix themselves? Because they can't pull themselves out of the curse. has huge implications. Second piece. Um, so our first piece was all of humanity is dead in sin. Number two, how Adam's effect is unlike Jesus. How Adam's effect is unlike Jesus. Sorry, that's 15, not 5. So look at verse 15. So this, this remember, Adam's the type. But this is how he's not like Jesus. This is where the tight falls apart. But the free gift, thus Jesus' work. So I'm verse 15, just so we're all following. The free gift of Jesus' work is not like the trespass. So Jesus' work on our behalf is different than Adam's work. For if many died through one man's trespass, and we did, much more have the grace of God, this new reality of being deeply loved by God, And the free gift by grace, all the work done by Jesus to bring us into this new love of that one man, Jesus Christ, so that the Father and Son, may both have grace for us. So if 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 you're following all the details here, the Father has grace for you, the Son has grace for you in Jesus. It abounded for many. So let me just strip all my words out of that go for that again. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. So we're part of humanity. It says here, you'll notice this says the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus had to become a man in order to do this work. So these are all deep things, right? Jesus Was is, was Jesus always a man? No. When did he become a man? When he became a baby on this earth. When did Jesus quit being a man? Eh. Never quit being a man. So Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. You ready for the fat word for the day? You might know it. Hypostatic union. 100%, 100%, okay? That is, that is who Jesus is, and he has to have his divinity, and he has to have his um, humanity in order to be our Savior. And in this passage, it is talking about the effects of his humanity as our head. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, Okay, for one moment. If you are in your mind still wrestling with the agitation of like, man, Adam, stomping in your heart, I I shouldn't be in him. Understand the point of this passage isn't so much how you are in Adam. The point of this passage goes, be in me. Look at the benefits of joys of what it means to be in Christ. But you can't be in Christ unless you first submit to being in Adam, if that makes sense. This passage is not about how bad it was to be in Adam. This passage is, look how amazing it is to be in Jesus. Look at what Jesus did in these details, these rich, deep, like age-shattering plans and details of humanity and headship. It's an amazing thing. So the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment, the result following from the one trespass, his his act of sin, brought condemnation, being correctly judged to be wicked. But the free gift following many transgressions, all of our many sins, brought justification. So correctly judged to be good. Why? Because of the goodness that was given to us by God. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, that sinful act, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ in a way far greater than the death reigning, Christians will reign in life in the future. That's the argument of verse 17. Our third piece is this, how Adam's effect um, is, sorry, I meant to say like, typo, love me anyway. It's the effect of Adam still on me. Okay, so how Adam's effect is like Jesus. The first one is unlike Jesus in that Adam's effect was deadly. It's like Jesus in that it's federal in verse 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So one act leads to death for everybody. One act leads to justification and life for everybody. All mankind being under the condemnation of Adam's trespass, now... We have only one chance of justification, and that's the work of Jesus Christ. It's the only one for all of humanity. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What I'm saying is the federal headship of Adam and the federal headship of Jesus are absolutely unavoidable things scripturally. We're not looking at just one statement woven into a line here. Do you see the repeats of these arguments? Repeat, 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 repeat. Because in the end, you must be in Jesus. You must be in Jesus. You want to be in Jesus. To take advantage of all that Jesus does for us, you have to be in him. And so there is a stress through whole lines of argumentation and multiple verses here. Federal headship, it's a real thing. You really were in Adam. So are all of us. But you could be really in Christ. And most of us of them are really in Christ. And he wants us to see the goodness of that. Our fourth piece is this. S- God showcased his victory and our blessings using the law exposed sin. Slight typo on that one. I'm sorry, guys. Gosh, I need an editor. God showcases victory and our blessings using the law exposed sin. At least you could say this guy didn't preach down at me, Right? God showcases victory in our blessings using the law exposed sin. Verse 20 says this. Now, tying this back into the big argument about how this fits together in the old covenant law, the law came in to increase the trespass, to highlight it, to make it measurably seen. But where sin increased, grace abounded more. So with the vastly increased sin shown to us by the law, we now even have more levels and heights of God's grace and love poured out with this amazing effect in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Without the law, without the Old Testament, we would never grasp how badly broken we are, and we needed to get that. We'd never know how bad it was. Number two, grace will not, reign aside from righteousness. God's grace is being poured out through a specific avenue. God is not generically sloppily graceful to the world. He makes the world. He speaks the world specific words and as he saves the world, he saves him through Jesus and one of the amazing works that Jesus does is that he brings righteousness. You can't have God's grace without his righteousness. He just didn't make it available. His grace works through righteousness. And that righteousness enables the grace to grant us, in this passage, never-ending life. Your physical awareness and body here, your body will perish unless God intervenes in some way and comes back before then or comes back before then. You're going down. We're all going down. So we will die. But his promise in this passage is heaven, is eternal life, is life that goes on forever with him. So let me break this out in two ways. Number one, for the person not trusting Christ. So openly not trusting Christ, not putting their faith in him, still trying to figure out, is he really all this? Or maybe also for the person who mistakenly is assuming that they're in, based upon uh, a prayer as a child, you got wet in baptism, you went to a camp, you walked forward, uh, you are generally loyal to your Baptist roots or something something like that, right? I grew up in the church. That's my my favorite right there. What do you think about Jesus? I don't know. I grew up in the church. All right. Answer. So if if you're in the category of like openly not believing him or maybe mistakenly thinking you are but you're not, I I just have a couple of questions for you just in authenticity. Do you want to stay in Adam? Jesus says in Adam, death, sin, and therefore death. And it goes everywhere. Do you want to stay there? Or do you want to stand in Christ? He's already demonstrated by the presence of spiritual death and physical death that we are broken. So the whole world sees it. The whole world knows everyone's dying. Everyone knows there's death there. And then furthermore, he further demonstrated just how impossibly deep the problem was for us by giving us his ways. And then quite honestly, if you read Jesus's, so that's the Old Testament law. If you read the commands of Jesus, you know what they're going to do to you as a person who doesn't have the spirit of God? They're going to break you. You can't do them. You just can't do them. They're way above you. So he's already showed us the impossibility of that. So my question is, you know, what will you choose? Uh, And really, what will you continue to choose? Who is more lovely? Who is more trustworthy? Who is better informative of where you came from and where you're going? Like, who is that than Jesus? But know this, that the invitation is open. The call of Jesus is clear. It's really sweet, a couple short words. Come to me, and you will find rest. It's authoritative. Repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's sweet. It's authoritative. Jesus says, come to me. Come to the new head, because you can't do it on your own. I, f- I want to finish out the message reversing a couple themes to all this. We just ran through this 1,000 miles an hour. No other way to tackle it for me. Um, I want to look back at the joys found in this. So joys are in the details. So just consider with me these things. Number one, because this passage, remember, isn't a passage of like, stinks to be human. That's not the passage. The passage is, look how hard it is to be human, but look how much better it is to be a human in Christ. Look at all these things. So let's look at these joys. Number one, and I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to talk to you right now as a person who has put your faith in Jesus, maybe two minutes ago. Maybe you don't know the G- know Jesus Just hear my words. These are invitations to you. But these are the messages to you as brothers and sisters. If you are 14 or if you're 45, male or female, these are promises for you. Number one, Jesus has completed your obedience and made you righteous. Verses 18 and 19. Listen to this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. He has justified you and given you life. And not only that, verse 19, and so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So he's given you righteousness and justified you. That is what he has done before the throne. Second part is this. He's proclaimed you justified. So not only has he provided righteousness for you and given you life, he has now proclaimed you judiciously as justified. Not justified someday. Now, right now, Kevin Heller, before the throne of God, is spotless in his sin and full of righteousness justified because Jesus stood on his behalf and gave him forgiveness and full righteousness justified. Not just as if I'd never sinned, but just as if I'd never sinned and never missed a beat, ever. He can't increase his justification. It is secured by the work of Jesus Jesus. And it enables us to rest in the secure love of Jesus. And that is a promise to you. Verse five, uh, 516. And the free gift is not like the result of the one of man's sin. For the judgment following the one man's trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Brought, done, given. You, as a child of God, you have justification. Jesus justifies you. He's ju- done it for you. The verdict is finished, or it could be if you don't know him. It could be. Trust him. It should, for you as a believer, it it should and will give you peace in your heart, knowing that he is at utter peace with you. It's a good thing to know that the God of heaven is not at war with you. The God of heaven no longer calls you an enemy. That's a sweet spot. So if you're justified, that peace should be there. You have a new and permanent legal status through the righteousness that he's presented on your behalf. He wants you to live in the benefits of security that justification brings. The third, he gives you life of much more grace. He gives you, child of God, a life of much more grace. You wanna think why Jesus is not boring? Number one, righteousness done. You really are righteous before the throne. Number two, you really are justified. Number three, he's brought you into this grace a much more grace. Three times in our passage, it talks about how much more, how much more, how much more, in the book of Hebrew in the book of James, but he gives a greater grace. Gives a greater grace. He brings us into this world of more grace. You see it in 15, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That is capstone on top of how bad it was. Look at this horrible tragedy. Look, he unloads the horrible tragedy and goes, but how much better is the work of Jesus. It's this new life of abundant grace that we live in. He gives you as the believer grace that dwarfs the greatest sin or offense in your life. Absolutely covers, decimates and smashes it. There's no moment in the savior of Jesus, in the savior of our heart savior where he goes, "Well, that was pretty bad. I don't know. Maybe this is a bum deal. Maybe that ex- maybe that ex- I mean, I died for him, but that's some pretty bad porn right there." That's some pretty bad cheating on the marriage. That's some pretty bad backstabbing right there. That's some pretty bad, that's some pretty bad. If you are the son and daughter of Jesus, the grace for you is far greater than the depths of your sin. Far greater. He wants you to know you live in the land of much, much more grace. And if you do live in the land of much, much more grace, it should and will bring joy and rest that he will never cast you aside. He didn't just simply forgive you a little bit. He's promised a far greater grace on top of that grace and love. He wants you to live in the benefits of being unconditionally loved that that much more grace brings. That's what he says, this grace in which we now stand in the first part of this chapter. Our fourth piece is this. He has given you, child of God, eternal life. He has given you eternal life. It is fully yours. Verse twenty-one. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus. Child of God, when your eyes grow dim and you close your eyes, you will open them to Him, and it will never end. It will never end. Eternal life is yours. It is a repeat, clear promise of the Savior. It's not a vague one. If it's vague to you, you you need to read His promises. You need to read just promises because I might die before you. Okay, and, I, and as I'm on my deathbed, um, here's what I need. We need to talk gospel. You need to gospel me. I'm going to gospel you. And so when I'm laying on my deathbed, I just need the refreshing words of Christ. I need the promises of Jesus. I don't need general concepts. Bring me texts. Read the words. Read the promises to me. Like, here you go, Burns. Eternal life. Promise for you. Joy is forevermore. Bring us promises, not vague promises. Thoughts. Let's, let's quit living in these vague thoughts of the gospel and vague thoughts of the promise of God. Get gritty. Get gritty, and to get gritty means you got to be fresh in the scriptures. You got to be inhaling it, digesting it, reading it. Get gritty. He, you, child of God, have been given eternal life. And the last piece is not only has He given you eternal life, but it's a pretty amazing eternal life. He has appointed you to reign in eternity. It's a subtle argument in the middle of all this. It's a pretty subtle argument. Made in verse fifteen. See if you can track it. It's right there. 4f because of one man's trespass, death reigned. That's reign, ruling words. Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundant grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Two things reign here. You'd think it'd be death and life. It's not. It's death reigning and you reigning. That's what's opposed. You don't just not die. You don't just live. Christ promises you will reign with him. He's promising you glory and an honor and a future and a happiness and joy that you have no idea about now. It's not just that you'll exist on. I guess I'll be happy. I guess he'll keep me from being bored on year 10,000. Totally different. You're going to reign with him. There is glory and honor and power that our minds have not begin to get because we are now in Jesus. He's that good. He's that much of a righteousness giver, that much of a justifier that much of a new grace giver, that much of an eternal life giver, that much of a reign giver. He's appointing you not only to not die, but to live and reign with him. And if you get that, and if you get that, he wants you to live in the benefits of knowing that you have a future of honor and glory and that this life is simply investment in the grand one beyond. And that his promised gift of reigning in life brings hope. So brothers and sisters, there we go super-fast run through a big, thick, swampy portion of Scripture that has so much in it that will properly grate against your reasonabilities and your sensibilities, right? Does. Uh, some of us maybe doesn't because we've looked at it so long, but even if you looked at it a long time, you still go, man, that's just different than everything I was raised to think. So notice this, and is Christ really worthy of trusting in this? And are we reading it correctly? Are we reading it correctly said like literally 18 times in one text? But number two, are you willing to give up on hope within humanity? Hope comes from outside of humanity in Jesus, who then becomes in humanity to bring us to this new head. And third, and this is what I really want you to walk out with, you want to grow out of your boredom with Jesus and want to admit it? If you want to grow out of your boredom with Jesus, look at the deets. Look at the details. Look at the things. Look at the specific promises. These things—they're not designed to just go. Okay, yes, He gives eternal life. Sit on that before Him, God. You have promised eternal life. Is this really true? What does this mean? You say it other places of Scripture, God, you promised that would rain with you. I don't get that. I just want to get through the day. I just want to get my nap in the afternoon. I just want. I just want to get married. I just want to have kids. I just want to retire. I just want. I, I. No, no, no. He's promising something way bigger. Sit before him with these promises. If you want to grow in amazement and awe with Jesus, you've got to take the specifics, the details, the muscle of what Christ has done and sit before him and say, Lord, let it sink into my heart. Create joys. Create hope. Let me be strong and rich, not only in my understanding of things, but in my belief and my delight that come out of those things. Look at the amazingly horrible situation that we all existed in and then how powerfully... Thoroughly, magnificently, Jesus crushed the whole situation and brings us to a far greater grace and life where we rule and reign with him. Let's pray. Father, I, I as I have prayed with this passage, um, Father, I pray that you would just unfold these truths before us into sweet fruit of confidence and peace, rest. Unfold these truths these passages in my brother's and sister's heart, and my heart's into amazement and gratitude, um, into excitement about the life that is to come, hope in the life that is to come, anticipation and um, um, really relishing in some of these vague, amazing things such as reigning with you that it's just so hard for us even to like get the tip of. So Father, we are your people. This is your word. Your spirit is in me. Your spirit is in all of us that know you. I pray that you would please open our eyes to your wonders. Please protect us from, I think, a a tipping point moment in our hearts where we will take newer, heavier, sharper, higher truths of you, and we will either push them over into not caring, or else by your spirit, they'll be pushed over into life and vitality and joy and hope. And Father, I pray that you would please push those uh, over in the hearts of us at Cross City and those who are friends and family or push it over so that we are amazed at Christ, our new head. And that we love him and that we taste of these promises that Jesus, you've invited us into. You've told us to come to you and find rest. You've told us that we've come to you out of our bellies. We'll flow rivers of living water. You've told us, I have told you these things so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. So Jesus, please, by the power of your spirit, as you've taken us so far to bring us in this room and so far to look at this passage, now please finish that work Father, by your spirit and pour out a lighting of this word on fire in our hearts so that we might not scoff at your beauties but instead be absolutely delighted. That is your work, Father, and I ask that you would do it because you love us as your kids. In Christ's name we pray.